0: Hello, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is
1: Joe Shaw. I'm the deputy head of the College of Humanities and Social Science here at the University of Edinburgh, and I'm a, a member of the Gifford Committee, the Gifford Lectures Committee. Uh, and it's my very happy pleasure to uh, welcome you here and to welcome also Lord Rowan Williams of Oystermouth to Edinburgh once more to give the fourth lecture in his Gifford series of six lectures entitled "Material Words: uh, Language as Physicality." As before, this lecture is being recorded and the video will be available online on the Gifford website shortly. Uh, This lecture is also being streamed live around the world. So at this point, I'm going to hand you over to uh, Lord Rowan Williams for him to deliver his lecture, as I said, Material Words, Language as Physicality.
2: Thank you very much. I begin with a quotation. Suppose that I have an autistic spectrum disorder and severe learning disabilities. I cannot make sense of the kaleidoscopic world I live in. My environment swirls around me and noises boom in my ears. Sometimes I'm swept by painful surges from my own nervous system. When these are more than I can bear, I try banging my head or lashing out at the people or things that overload my senses to stop the overstimulation. I retreat to my own world and focus on a particular sensory stimulation. That's from a book by Phoebe Caldwell, who is one of the most creative interpreters of ASD, Autistic Spectrum Disorder, in recent years. She's explored in depth the roots of autistic behavior in this crisis of sensory overload, and has underlined the crucial importance in working with people who live with such conditions of establishing what feels like a controllable level of feedback, mostly by a closely focused attention to the particular coping strategies developed by people with ASD, so that the supporter or therapist can echo and extend those patterns of behavior and create a situation where communication is possible. Caldwell movingly describes how this works in a number of specific cases. A person expresses their distress by banging the helper's arm, and she, in response, bangs the arm of her chair. This is a way of recognizing that what's going on is the attempt to contain distress by finding a physical focus as we may cling on to something unconsciously in moments of acute anxiety. But it also opens a way out of the distressed person's world by mirroring the action, saying, in effect, what you are doing is not just yours. It is heard and can be followed. Here's Phoebe Caldwell again. His brain is put in the position of saying, hey, that's my sound or rhythm, but I didn't make it. I want him to look outside himself for the source of his utterance. So what we're seeing in the interactions described by Phoebe Caldwell in her account of her therapeutic work is the formation of a language. What is uttered is received and followed. After a certain point of mutual acknowledgement is reached, rhythms can be subtly altered and extended. What is fed back is not chaotic and threatening, but recognisable. And as Caldwell insists, to learn how to respond to a person with an acute ASD condition requires a high degree of dispossession in the helper who has to learn another language and will do so only if they're ready for some very distorting and vulnerable, disorienting and vulnerable patches we move out of the realm of simple self-stimulation when we see that our patterns of activity, including noise-making, are reflected elsewhere in the sensory world. And the identification of mirror neurons in the brain shows the physiological basis for this. The same set of neural connections happens both when I do something and when I perceive it done outside myself. Even more strikingly, this pattern of connection can be reproduced when the same rhythm or sequence is enacted in a different mode or medium. For most of us, this is a routine aspect of our learning and communicating. For the person with an ASD, there is an apparent absence of this process of neural connection. They will recognize and respond to imitations of their own behavior, so that, for example, When a person with ASD engages in what's called repetitive or stereotyped behavior, they're likely to be attempting a highly controlled form of communication to which the only acceptable response is some sort of mirroring on the part of the other person involved. The person with ASD will not imitate another person in performing an unfamiliar action, quoting again, because it is outside the well-worn path of his repertoire. It's only when the person with ASD recognises what it is that he uses to talk to himself, in Phoebe Caldwell's phrase, that he is able to interact. So anyone seeking an interaction has to decode what such a person thinks of as talking to himself in the patterns of repetitive speech or gesture. Caldwell again. I answer by imitation, confirming that I have not only received and taken on board her gesture, but perhaps more importantly, that it means something to me. The point of this excursion into the intriguing and rapidly developing field of the study of autistic conditions is to underline the fact that our conversational practice rests on a closely woven scheme of physical interaction the elusive process whereby the firing of our neurons reflects the neuronal activity of another, confirming that what we perceive is recognizable as the same sort of thing as what we do, the ways in which we can reinforce or indeed frustrate recognition in the degree to which we understand what another is saying to herself and shape our physical behavior accordingly, the methods we evolve of containing or controlling potentially menacing situations by physical, gestural strategies of which we're not fully conscious. Just as in neuroscience generally, so here. We learn certain fundamental insights about awareness and communication by attending closely to what happens when the system is functioning eccentrically. Understanding autism is a powerfully useful key to understanding certain things about language itself and about ourselves as language users. One of these things is that, once again, contrary to any simple stimulus and response model of how language works, our communicative activity normally selects and organises stimuli, and when overloaded, as in autistic conditions, narrows and focuses that activity in self-defensive ways. And further, this communicative activity also normally functions by a process of reinforcing, checking isn't quite the right word, reinforcing its own workings in relation to the reflections it perceives in others. A potentially overwhelming environment is made manageable through these two strategies. We select what to attend to, and we're encouraged to depend on the viability of our selection by seeing it in some measure reflected in the selective agency of others. When that selection capacity is for any reason adversely affected, the experience of overload already mentioned, we no longer know what to look for in the activity of others. And it's only the patient work described by Phoebe Caldwell, the labour of working out what are the rhythms devised in order to protect the raw and overstimulated brain, that can begin to restore some kind of expected communication skill. And this implies that the formation of the physical world we deal with and talk about is necessarily a cooperative business, a process that interweaves various material operations in brain and physiology, so as to identify objects that are perceived in common. As I develop physically, I develop a set of strategies for finding my way around what confronts me. I learn how not to bump into things. It's been, I think, quite rightly said that the beginnings of language are simply in learning how not to bump into things. I learn this, and thus I create an internalized map of my environment, increasingly sophisticated and differentiated. This bit of the territory presents this kind of obstacle, This bit presents that kind. The fact of binocular vision already presents me with a plurality of possible perspectives, so that I'm alert from the start to depth as a feature of my perceptual field. In tandem with this, I'm being provided constantly with confirmatory or non-confirmatory material from other agents whose visible strategies for managing the environment resemble mine. This is where the role of mirror neurons comes in. I discover not only the points at which the physical environment resists my motion, but by following the comparable reactions of others where this environment resists other agents as well. So that the primitive concept of a physical object is not in fact the straightforward presentation of a set of material stimuli, it's the product of a more involved response in which diverse patterns of identifying resistance in the environment are held together the very notion of a three-dimensional object assumes such a convergence of different points of view and points where resistance is to be met. And as perception becomes more conscious, such different possible points of view come to include the idea of continuity over time as well as the unity of different points in space. I shall have acquired a map of my environment in which I can locate myself in relation to other physical presences, I shall have recognized something of the paradoxical character of my own physical presence, which I perceive in a unique way. In the language of the most painstaking 20th century exponent of this approach to understanding perception, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, I shall have recognized, I quote, my bodily intelligence. I shall have recognized my presence in the world as, in his phrase, intelligently orientated. And against such a background, language has to be understood as something more and other than a tool for getting information from one container to another. In merleau pontys words, language manifests a link between human agents and between agents and the world. As we noted when discussing Ian McGilchrist's analysis of the origins of speech, it's a mistake to think of speech originating in the practical need to communicate information. It has its roots rather in articulating and testing mutual recognition, inviting response of an ever more differentiated kind. Which is why Phoebe Caldwell's ventures in establishing communication with people living with autistic conditions tells us so much about language itself. Communication is not, in this context, passing on information. It is establishing a world in common where someone who is radically unsure as to whether their own response to the environment is recognizable and viable can find assurance that they are not isolated. I should mention here that Phoebe Caldwell, in addition to writing a couple of admirable books about her therapeutic method, has made a DVD showing this process of working with one particular young man with a severe autistic condition. And if you want to see chronicled the process from radical mistrust and passionately anxious control to something like resonance and communication, it is the most extraordinary story and a deeply moving film. The vicious circle of anxiety and inward turning strategies can be broken. And Melo Ponti says, Language takes on meaning for a child when it establishes a situation. Hence, he argues, words are fundamentally not objects designed somehow to depict other objects. Words are practices. I quote, a certain use made of my phonatory equipment, a certain modulation of my body as a being in the world. Remember, language is something we do with our bodies. It depends on larynx and face and eyes and hands and much more besides. Language is a specific modification of the ensemble of physical variables constituting the continuance of an object's life in the world in another medium. It is the aspect, says Meloponti, taken on by the object in human experience. That's what it is to speak about something. But as his argument goes on to make plain, this in turn means that I apprehend an object precisely as something shared. There's no point at which I have to make some conscious or half-conscious move outside a private frame of reference to a shared one. My awareness of and my speech in respect of an object in my environment are not the product of some fusion between an internal sense of what I'm experiencing and a process of inspired guesswork about the contents of another mind. Seeing something and speaking about something are practices in which I take a particular place in a flow of activity that embraces myself and my neighbor. In the first instance, of course, my unique parental neighbor. To refer back again to McGilchrist's characterization of the origins and nature of language, the body seeks a mode of action that moves with the perceived movement of the environment. It seeks to continue the style of action or energy it reflects or represents through gesture as well as sound, which is why, to return to a recurring theme in these lectures, representation is not substitution or imitation. Now, this is an example that has worn away almost to a cliche, but some of you will remember Bruce Chatwin's book, Songlines is account of Australian Aborigines singing up the landscape. The landscape of a particular route through almost trackless and signless wilderness is encoded as the length of time it takes to sing a specific sequence of sound. Representing the landscape is inseparably bound up with a time-taking physical action worked out in response to a range of environmental triggers and clues. It would be very odd to call it a description of the landscape, yet it is undoubtedly accountable to a series of material stimuli from outside the brain and provides reliable knowledge of how to, literally in this case, how to go on. It's a representation. But it's also the deposit of collaborative activity, an inherited practice tested in shared action. It carries information, but can't be reduced to a set of facts separable from the complex material enactment of walking and singing. The practice might well be described in Melo Ponti's phrase as the form that the object, in this case the landscape, takes in human experience, the object's life in another medium. The song becomes the landscape in the singer. Or, to salvage an older metaphysical vocabulary, it's the life of an intelligible form within a particular human intelligence. The implication of what McGilchrist, Nello ponty and Phoebe Caldwell, along with a fair number of others, have to say about the body and language is that one of the philosophical myths we need to be most wary of is the habit of opposing purely active subject to passive object, referring to an active mind's perception of mindless and passive process as the basic paradigm of knowledge. A coherent material object is, we have seen, a concept emerging from quite an intricate interplay of processes, bringing in the physiological fact of binocular vision, the mutually confirmatory strategies registered in the activity of mirror neurons and articulated as speech is mastered, and the awareness both of time passing and of the availability of past impressions and interactions in speech and other memory-related operations. So that material objects, the material world as such, are always already saturated with the workings of mind. We can't abstract the object we examine from the means we are using to examine it, that's another commonplace, but um, if so, it hasn't yet been fully absorbed by many who write popularizing texts on scientific method. When the evolutionary biologist Pierluigi Luisi asserts that, quote, it is human consciousness that makes possible the emergence of objects of the outside world, he is reinforcing Meloponti's Ponti's analysis of the process of intelligence selection by which the brain decodes multiple stimuli into consistent structuring patterns. And he's warning against the idea that the only basic and dependable form of knowledge is accurately registering of the simplest available level of material causal interaction. That simplest available level is in fact as much the product of complex mental operation as the most elaborate metaphysical version. What is more, such simple levels of interaction already presuppose a material order in which there are agencies that we can only describe metaphorically as seeking solutions, producing innovative structures as paths to future goals. As Connor Cunningham notes in his admirable essay on the theological implications of Darwin, something analogous to intelligence has to be assumed in the way even plant life adapts to its environment. An entire system learns and plans. So far from consciousness or human intelligence being a somewhat embarrassing excrescence on the surface of rational material processes, it will be better to say that intelligence is literally the only phenomenon in the universe that makes sense of the overall direction of material existence towards coherent, sustainable, innovative, adaptable forms. If, to pick up a word I've used occasionally in earlier discussion, the story of the material world is one of negotiation, systems finding their way in interacting with one another and constantly refining and elaborating this rather than settling in an eternal equilibrium, conscious life, the knowing subject, is a development entirely consistent with this story. Indeed, we could not conceive of the story without the model provided by consciousness itself, the awareness of negotiation One implication of that, in turn, is that language itself must similarly be seen as the natural integrating factor in the evolving material universe. Rather than looking to material processes understood in a mechanical fashion as the key to understanding what language is, it would be nearer the truth to say that we look to language to tell us what matter is. That is, language exhibits a pattern of cooperative agency in which the structure of life or action in one medium is rendered afresh, translated in another. The material universe appears as an essentially symbolic complex. That's to say it's a universe of coherent process and temporal stability, an intelligible universe. Because the unfolding story of material evolution leads to speech, to the expression and sharing of intelligible structure, both the communicating of information and the reinforcing of mutual human cohesion, which allows more and more creative negotiating with other parts of the environment. It's not an accident that the vocabulary of the natural sciences, not least biology, is in fact littered with language-based metaphors. We've noted this already in passing. To take just one example, the notion of a genetic code and the immensely sophisticated concept of the genome take it for granted that there are, in our genetic material, regularities that can be identified as significant by other material receptors. Codes are there for decoding. We're so accustomed to using the rhetoric of dead or mindless matter that the idea I've just touched on of matter itself as inherently symbolic in the sense of being structured as a complex of patterns inviting recognition and constantly generating new combinations of intelligible structures is likely to seem odd or fanciful to some. Yet this is the clear implication of the most advanced researches currently conducted on the material world. Think of the Human Genome Project. The idea of a fundamental, irreducible description of the real stuff of the world, the interaction of basic particles, now seems painfully crude. Several decades ago, David Bohm's book, Wholeness and the Implicate Order, a philosophical essay by a noted nuclear physicist, outlined a picture of the material world in terms of what he called hollow movement a connected system in which every local subtotality of agencies carried the informational content of the whole. We could properly isolate this or that field of agency for analysis when we'd identified adequately stable patterns of order and measure in a particular locality, he says. But we should not forget that this kind of consideration in terms of separable entities is approximate and in a sense provisional. Given that the ultimate explanatory or descriptive account would have to be one that laid out the way in which the entire cosmic order came to coalesce in this particular way at this particular point. A goal, he says, with some understatement, probably unknowable. To speak of an implicate order for the universe is to recognize that the whole pattern is folded into every part. We make distinctions between ensembles of elements as a way of identifying certain situations in which Bohm's hollow movement crystallizes in such and such a way for a period. The tempting error is to suppose that we've identified enduring and solid building blocks in the making of this distinction. It's more helpful, Bohm suggests, to think of the analogy, say, of two photographic images of a fish tank taken from different angles. We see distinct images, with some obvious correlation between them, but we'd only understand what was actually there, inverted commas, when we imagined the three-dimensional medium in which the process was one and undivided. So, he says, when we observe correlated behavior in two atoms at a distance, with no apparent causal connection as we normally understand the term, it is most helpful to think of a further dimensionality in which that observed behavior was one event folded up in itself. Now, Bohm, early in his book, notes that we can be imprisoned by the conventional structure of most of our languages with their subject-verb-object patterns, implying that there are fixed, fixed substances exerting their agency upon other fixed substances. But the saving eccentricity of language is that it is itself constantly subversive of this pattern. We use language in ways that unsettle the simple notion of basic solid elements, notably by metaphor and other supposedly non-standard forms of utterance. And perhaps, Bohm proposes, we need a quite different mode of speech, or at least of logical representation, which leaves us less enslaved to the primitive and unsustainable metaphysic of things doing things to other things. He christens this imagined alternative language as the Rio mode, from the Greek word for flow, a style of discourse that refuses to absolutize the isolated substantial agent. And however much our so-called normal language works with nouns and verbs, subjects and objects, it repeatedly pushes us back towards this apprehension of a universal fluidity that's caught in specific clusters of significance, whose component elements ceaselessly recombine to generate new moments of clustering. And the next lecture will explore further some of the ways in which this habitually happens. But in regard to our theme this evening, the salient point is that the more our speech attends to and understands its continuity with the material environment, the clearer it becomes, first, that it's not a system for depicting isolated subjects acting on each other in a void, which is where the causal determinism so casually signalled by Rorty and so fervently pressed by more recent secular apologists appears so profoundly at odds with what we know of material existence itself. And second, that the position of the embodied speaker is not that of a detached recorder of mechanical interactions. The act of speaking and making sense in speaking is itself one of those clusters of significant crystallization, in the flux of the implicate order. Or to put it another way, the act of speaking, of making sense, is inseparably part of the order of things. It is, as we've insisted earlier, not an alien importation into a mechanical universe, an epiphenomenon that causes minor embarrassment to right-minded materialists. And to speak in these terms is, of course, not to give some sort of license for imprecision, for loose claims that definition and limit are unimportant or unreal, because the real essence of all things is just some sort of indivisible life force, as if the particularity of substance were entirely unreal. The truth is that the account just offered, with its detailed artworkings by David Bohm and others, insists upon a more rather than less exact attention to the limited specificity of situations. Each intelligible cluster poses a set of demanding questions about its relationships with others in the same stream. Each, as the crystallizing of a universal flow of activity, is going to open out onto such a wide assortment of connections that its representation is never finalized. Relating this to earlier discussions, we can say that the work of finding more and more comprehensive or sustainable representative forms is formidable and unfinishable. But this also means that our representative forms will be constantly in search of new levels of adequacy or exactitude. To recognize their imperfect and challengeable character doesn't mean settling for vagueness, but the very opposite and the the attention demanded of me as a speaker is intense. Now, the sort of model of speech that I've been outlining is in one sense convergent with the old doctrine that words carry the life of what they relate to or represent. But to say that, of course, is not to imply what some would call a magical relation between word and world, such that to know a name is to know and possess an essence, to have something at one's disposal. It would be more true to say that what is being spoken of has the speaker at its disposal, at least to the extent that the speaker's stance in the world is for the moment of speaking defined by the presence of what is spoken of. A roundabout way of paraphrasing the Aristotelian and Thomist model of the action of an object's form on the knowing subject. However exactly we put it, the point is we need to set aside two profoundly unhelpful and misleading models of how speech and thought relate to their environment. One is that we are the recipients of individualized sets of material stimuli which we then translate into expression or communication, offering them somewhat tentatively to other speakers, never sure that their individual set of stimuli corresponds to ours. The other is that we are given access to the hidden interior essences of what we encounter by some mystically complete and effective image or sound. Both models share some of the same basic misconceptions. They assume a certain kind of gap between mind and object, let alone between one mind and another, and so assume that there is a distance to be crossed between mind and world. Magical thinking, affirms that this can be crossed by the transfer of an essential content from one place to another, giving the subject unlimited access to the object. More conventional modern epistemologies, other kinds of magic, envisage a processing and synthesizing of intrinsically neutral or meaningless material data with the pervasive background anxiety that what is really there eludes us and that we can have no certainty that our perceptions are shared. In contrast, the approach I've been outlining here acknowledges that if there is no primitive set of atomistic data to be labelled or catalogued, speech is always looking for means of representing an event and, in some measure, therefore, prolonging or reenacting an event. Because adequate representation can't be restricted to a simple reflection of the moment of appearing. An event is non negotiably part of a continuum, its prior conditions and afterlife are bound enter into representation. What we say is molded according to how an event goes. It shows the impact of an event at a number of very different levels, from the apparently straightforward record of sensory impressions, through to various kinds of significance for a human cultural context. That speech, in this sense, extends the form of activity at work in an event is far from saying that it's a magical capturing of essences, but it has some resonance, at least, with the linguistic speculations of some of the Russian religious philosophers of the early 20th century, who described names as energimata, energized realities of what they designated, active bearers of the agency they represented, rather than denominators of some fixed essence. Basic to all this is the question of what we make of those encounters with our environment where we can't be said to be gathering evidence for a process that will lead to a conclusion. If what we encounter is primitively discrete lumps of sensory data, then everything else is the product of a process, other minds, dimensionality, temporal duration, and so on. But in fact, we're faced with a variety of encounters in which it makes no sense at all to think of quanta of material that enables to come to a conclusion about what we're engaged with. Melo-Ponty invites us to think of standing with a friend, looking together at a landscape, each pointing out to the other features of what they see. He writes, Paul's finger, which is pointing out the church tower, is not a finger for me that I think of as oriented towards a church tower for me, It is Paul's finger which itself shows me the tower that Paul sees, just as conversely when I make a movement towards some point in the landscape that I can see, I don't imagine that I'm producing in Paul, in virtue of some pre-established harmony, inner visions merely analogous to mine. I believe, on the contrary, that my gestures invade Paul's world and guide his gaze. Our presence as communicating beings alongside each other establishes a common world a common set of possible tasks, challenges, exercises, in which there is for each of us enough that is the same and enough that is different to make exchange possible and meaningful. The pointing gesture is simply read as an instruction within a common framework. And the eye that thinks, observes, gestures, and speaks is the point of convergence for a field of perception discovering its locus and boundaries in the sheer fact of contact and continuity, experiencing the meaningful instruction of someone else's gesture or sound, being molded by this as by other elements in the field. So what happens in the arrival in the world of a human subject is, says Melo Ponti, neither a mysterious spiritual monad nor a bundle of contingently grouped sensations, but a new set of possibilities of situations. That is what a new identity is, a new set of possibilities of situations in which the shifting standpoint of the body constantly remakes the perceived world. But this remaking is not a repeated process of putting together discrete percepts, working towards the composition of an integrated scene of ordered and distinct objects. Consciousness is not a jigsaw puzzle. It is rather the business of absorbing and responding to the field in which I am located and which is acting in me as much as on me, feeling my way, resetting my coordinates, and where speech and gesture are concerned, doing so by means of signals which do not need to be examined as possible evidence for the presence of another possibly analogous individual subject, but which are purely and simply the vehicles of contact and interaction, with other actualities and possibilities in the field. To take another obvious example, not in fact Melo Ponti's, what does it mean to say that I catch someone's eye? I look around the audience for those eyes still open and here and there catch an eye. When that happens, it's impossible to regard the eye that I catch as simply a discrete set of sense impressions. The only way I see it or experience it is as a seeing presence. You will, I'm sure, have had the experience of looking at even the picture or photograph of an eye and having the sense of being looked at. You will discount this sense once you know it's a photograph, but you'll have to work against the grain. If you're looking through a small aperture and a photograph of an eye were on the other side, your first reaction would be to sense that you were being looked at. If the screen were taken away and you saw that it was simply a photograph, of course, you adjust. But you adjust from a starting point. And when our eyes meet, we don't conclude to anything. It's not one of those mental processes that Wittgenstein warns us about in the philosophical investigations, as I mentioned the other night. We don't go through the sequence. That looks like the eye I see in the mirror. It's likely to function in another body in much the same way that it does in mine. There is a good chance that I'm in contact with another subject like myself. By the time we've gone through that process, the other eye has definitely, I think, closed or turned away. (laughs) We recognize that we are seen, that we are immediately constituted as recipients of intelligent action because that's what being seen carries with it. Recognising that the eye we see is a photographed or a painted eye is recognising that this eye belongs in a different situation with different possibilities. But it doesn't cast doubt on what is happening in the ordinary exchange we call catching someone's eye. And the ensemble of such experiences appears to tell us that to see and understand and speak is to find a place in a field of intelligible embodied pattern, a field always already charged with other kinds of intelligent agency. We're involved, like it or not, in the assumption that what we see has a history, that an eye is how someone looks at us, that an object has three dimensions, that a word spoken to us is a sign of a shared intelligible world. And that's not something we bring about by weighing evidence and deciding on a plausible and defensible position. It is the immediate condition of acting or speaking. It is the substance of life in the world, life as a body. Now, put this alongside our earlier discussion of Phoebe Caldwell's reflections on autism, and we can connect ideas about the physical location of language with another very significant theme, another very basic theme, in our interaction, and that is the importance of trust in understanding how speech works. As we've seen, people experiencing autistic spectrum disorders cope with uncontrollable environmental stimulus by behaving as if they were not persuaded that what others take to be the ordinary stuff of the world, including other speakers, could be relied on. The problem for a naive observer of ASD conditions is that people with these conditions apparently have access to all the evidence, all the data that other people have. Yet they seem to refuse to draw the normal conclusion. And of course, until we developed the relative sophistication with which we now approach issues around autism, this led to all kinds of violent and repressive and uncompassionate responses to people's challenges. The work of Phoebe Caldwell and others explains why it's a seriously unhelpful framework for understanding what's going on if we just think of people who have the data but are failing to draw the conclusions. The more abstract argument I've been outlining explains why our relation to the environment (coughs) is anyway not a matter of assessing evidence and drawing conclusions. What is non- Sorry. What is non-standard or malfunctioning in the ASD case has to do with a lack of a means for absorbing and responding to the environment as part of a shared project. The absence of any confidence that we can make viable selections among the stimuli we're receiving linked with a difficulty in seeing how this selection works for others. Hence, the therapeutic response is, in Caldwell's words, something to do with listening to the way the person with ASD talks to himself or herself. And by echoing this, the helper creates an environment in which making some sense of stimuli appears as a cooperative task, an environment where there are other recognisable sense-makers at work. It's precisely as we diagnose the eccentric workings of language and perception, in the case of ASD, that we grasp how fundamental trust is to the usual workings of communication. Routinely, as Melo Ponti stresses in that passage about looking at the landscape along with a friend, routinely we assume that a word or a gesture is automatically received as significant. And what is disturbing in any human interaction is when, as in the stories Phoebe Caldwell relates, my significant gesture makes no apparent impact on another's gesture, clearly important for them, or when that gesture can't be deciphered as significant in my world. Habitual human interaction has moments where gaps of this kind open briefly, but the pain and stress of some encounters with people experiencing ASD arises from the fact that the gap between non-connecting gestures is long-term and so often seems unbridgeable. Of course, from one point of view, it may be misleading even to speak of trust here. It's not that I make a leap of faith in assuming there is such a thing as shared significance. Here I am enjoying my personal mental world, but oh well, I suppose I'd better take the risk of assuming there's somebody else out there. Another of those toxic mental processes that we're warned against. The leap of faith to assume there's shared significance could only be true if I began from an individual set of sense experiences that I named and I organized, and which I then, as it were, floated on the market ventured to make public in the hope that they might correspond to someone else. The truth is more that the naming and organizing is, from the start, a shared affair. Faced with the classic skeptical question of how I know that the color I call red is what another speaker calls red, we can only say that if the application of the term is learned and we're able to negotiate its use with apparent success, the shared character of its significance is axiomatic but it's not completely nonsensical to talk about trust here. We speak to another in the confidence that hitherto unknown collections of sounds will register as I wish them to. We listen in the confidence that the sounds we're hearing connect us within a shared situation. In such a setting, the incompleteness of our words discussed earlier is not a failure or a threatening exposure, but an inseparable feature of how we know we are always going to be in each other's debt for negotiating our way in the world. And in the background is the insistent suggestion that my own knowing or speaking is fully what it can be in the context of an unlimited convergence of points of view, perspectives on the shared environment. The broader our shared situation, the more securely we know and judge, which in turn provides the grounds for being very wary of any strategy, cultural, religious, or political, that assumes any perspective to be dispensable. It's, if you like, part of a language-based case for moral universalism and the universal value of the person. Tying this again to the issues raised by ASD conditions and their treatment, it's clear that a therapist like Phoebe Caldwell begins from the assumption that the person with ASD has a point of view and a capacity to create working symbols to make sense. The task is to make space enough for this to surface and connect. So that this approach warns us against a faulty and problematic use of ideas of mutual recognition as the basis for ethics. Faced with what we don't recognize or with an apparent lack of recognition, we're reminded that the fact of encountering a recognisable body presents us with a human point of view. This, as a body, is a sense-making organism in that it is receiving the input of a shared situation. Before we conclude, notice the word, that a putative human organism, an unborn child, a severely challenged adult, a person with dementia or with a condition that radically isolates them from communication, a person in a so-called vegetative condition, before we conclude that such a person is beyond the community of shared sense-making, we better pause and weigh the importance of recognizing not necessarily another speech user operating just like ourselves, but another center of meaningful experience, another point of view, the focus of another intelligible situation, and therefore a contributor in ways I may not easily grasp, to my own intelligence. The human other, and to some extent, the sentient other more generally, as this has some evident moral implications for our relation to the animal world, the human other is a point on which relations converge. This remains true whatever level of linguistic or communicative performance is exhibited by a subject. And another way of expressing this is to say that any other I encounter is always already turned towards something other than just myself, as interlocutor or observer. They are located in a territory that is not defined around me. To accept the notion of the body as the center of a situation or a set of possible situations, in Meloponti's sense, and to understand the body's life as continuous with the intelligible input of the environment, implies that in any encounter we begin from the trust that we are engaged with another perspective that is part of a whole intelligible environment and thus something I am likely to need in my own developing intelligent life. It's also to accept that the other remains irreducibly other because I can never simply be where the other is and because the other's relations cannot be mapped exhaustively onto mine. Every imaginable human encounter, I want to say, has these characteristics. And the foundation of an ethical response to the world we inhabit is bound up with this acknowledgement of the other's body as meaningful. Meaningful because it is the point of intersection for a specific set of symbolic transactions. However impenetrable the bodily life of the other may be, as in the cases I mentioned, we can't let go of this trust without being drawn back into the corrosive attitude of regarding the other as material providing or failing to provide evidence for some conclusion about whether our perceptions can be confirmed by reference to independent witnesses and whether or not a putative independent witness is really an intelligent subject as I am. Wittgenstein's dictum that the human body is the best picture of the human soul comes to mind. And it suggests that any adequate account of what is due to the spiritual or moral dignity of human beings has to presume that we take the body of the other with complete seriousness as a meaningful presence, never to be reduced to a possession. Which, incidentally, raises some fundamental questions for current discussion about the ownership of a person's genetic profile. But that's another story. Well, if we try to draw these themes together, what emerges is something like this. any universe in which matter is itself inescapably symbolic, where matter is inseparable from the communication of ordered interrelation, operating as part of a global or rather cosmic system of interacting signals, then for us to understand any phenomenon is for us to be engaged with and in a situation rather than for us to find appropriate labels for individual component objects with the ideal of discovering irreducible building blocks. Our attempts to characterize or represent a situation in speech will therefore be diverse, not chaotic or vague, but equally not reducible to the single authoritative reproduction of some basic structure. To try to be truthful is to try and find a way of speaking that does most justice to the diversity and plurality of a situation. So that truthful speech is inevitably committed to metaphor in order to represent what we could call the overflow of significance that we confront. Each of us, as an intelligent linguistic subject, stands at a unique intersection of symbolic action, simply in virtue of standing where we physically stand as bodies. And if this is so, we should be careful of any scheme of thinking that invites us to measure the acceptability or normalcy of another bodily presence, especially as regards its communicative capacity. That another does not or cannot speak in ways we can digest cannot render them ineligible to count as subjects with meaningful points of view. With some such others, we can, by careful and compassionate labor, in the spirit of a Phoebe Caldwell, bring ourselves to recognize capacities we'd hitherto ignored or misread. With some, we can't. But the important point is to resist normalizing simply what's easily accessible for us in ways that rule others out from the business of human exchange and engagement. And An anthropology of this sort will insist that whether or not we hear and recognize speech as we usually receive it, the symbolic world of any and every other is something I need to enhance and complete my own. Language does not abolish the all-important distance between bodies. On the contrary, by affirming the always unfinished character of converse or exchange, it acknowledges the non-negotiable diversity of bodies and gives us a clue to the ethical basis of recognizing the human other, and perhaps the sentient other more generally, not to mention the otherness of our material environment, as something not to be possessed. And I've argued elsewhere that a philosophical and theological underpinning for talking about human rights needs to begin from some such account of what bodily difference and distance mean. But the significance of this discussion for our natural theology lies in the recognition that a world saturated with embodied symbolic communication is one that resists description in the simple terms of mechanical process, and one that raises the question of how we are to think of the entire system of the universe as an intelligible whole, as a world. To say that it is an intelligible whole is to say that we rightly approach our environment in the expectation of consistency or regularity, wherever and whoever we are and whatever is before us. And the imagination of a universal consistency in the light of all the foregoing, requires us to imagine mind that sees such consistency. Yet the consistency and interdependence of the universe could not be an object for a single mind, and it's not at all clear what it could mean to say that it's a possible object for the totality of contingent minds, past, present, and future. In other words, if there is that for which the universe is an intelligible whole, We couldn't characterize that as a mind, among others, only much bigger. So, the model that I've sketched leaves on the table the question of what it might be if the material universe is indeed charged with intelligence, what it might be for the material universe as a universe to be intelligible to something we can only think of in terms of mind, and yet cannot describe as a mind. But it's also why we can say that one of the basic implications of seeing the world as in some way sacred is to see it as always hiding something from us, though always presenting fresh aspects for understanding and representation. And it's why we might characterize the systematically secular attitude as one that assumes we should be able to reach and expose any and all of these hiding places, any aspects of what we encounter that appear to resist conclusive description. Now often what the secular perspective is rebelling against is a resort to vagueness and rhetoric about mystery when there are perfectly answerable questions around and we have to beware of laziness, evasiveness or dishonesty. The problem arises only when this entirely proper rebelliousness goes on to deny that there are other questions that can legitimately be asked, indeed that seem to insist on being asked. When the search for the most adequate version of a description of what's before us becomes a campaign to rule out in advance those representations that crowd in on and around the descriptive exercise and suggest connections, implications, not contained in the first-level descriptive or explanatory narrative, that's properly the sphere of empirical science. To speak, as some do, of the need for re-enchanting a world shrunk and bleached by science is actually not all that helpful. It does far less than justice to the scientific enterprise and it can all too easily be read as an appeal, again, for less precision, as if it would be better to stop scientific inquiry at a certain stage of complexity or depth. But what is undoubtedly true is that an account of speech and thought which insisted that what we've been calling the representative response was no more than a sort of leisure activity, an optional extra for those who fancied it on top of the truly indispensable descriptions of proper analysis, that would do just as little justice to the plain variety of how we construe what we're engaged with. The shifting, constantly expanding perspectives of historical processes of understanding and representation have no end as far as we are concerned. Yet they presuppose a kind of coherence, a unity that is never itself capable of being represented, let alone described. The theological claim, which comes in at this point, is that such an intelligible unity in our field of perception implies a fundamental informing intelligence, that for which the universe is intelligible which perhaps is one way of rephrasing the Thomist principle that the knowledge of God is the cause of things, scientia dei causa Rerum. And again, from a theological point of view, the implication of convictions like this is that every finite phenomenon or situation or perceptual cluster is at some level a carrier of divine significance. It is a symbol, not only in the sense that it contributes to a pattern of intelligible exchange and interaction, but as something briefly indicating God. One can take this as license for an approach to the world which looks for allegories of the divine, ciphers to be decoded. It's an approach found in some sorts of medieval literature, not least in texts such as the wonderful moralized bestiaries that were written during that period. Everything around us has a moral meaning Watch the behavior of beavers and you learn something about ethics, though not quite what you might expect. But it's more in accord with our cautions about presuming that the world consists of things with fixed boundaries if we say that any and every event in the world is potentially a communication of infinite intelligence. This does not mean that every event has an edifying theological explanation of the kind typical of bad theodicy, all suffering has a purpose. It's more that there is in every situation the possibility for the human intelligence to receive some kind of formation by the infinite intelligent act of God. Our skills in discernment and interpretation, the skills associated with the gift of prophecy in its fully theological sense, are activated so as to produce new levels of understanding of of our calling or that of others even where such understanding is inchoate and conceptually unclear. In briefer and more epigrammatic terms, each situation is a word from God. Harking back to the Byzantine notion that the world is a system of reasonable and coherent communications, reflecting the infinite diversity of ways in which the one divine word, the eternal self-bestowing of God, can be reflected and participated the infinitely diverse Logoi reflecting the single Logos, in the thought particularly of theologians like Maximus the Confessor. So, what we speak of as our material environment is not an ensemble of atomized objects defined by supposedly simple and machine-like causal patterns. It invites, and the anthropomorphic term is hard to avoid, that particular kind of material following on that we call language, whose role is indeed partly to chart causal relations, but which regularly exceeds this role. The conscious pushing of the boundaries of what we perceive in the exercise of the imagination is of a piece with all that we think of as the ordinary exercise of speech and significant gesture. The Coleridgean intuition that imagination is therefore a matter of central theological importance, is brought back into focus. The fact that the world ceaselessly prompts new configurations may be a brute fact about experience, or it may point us to an apprehension of unconditioned act, a fundamental intelligent energy in response to which all finite agency or movement is constituted as the flow of searching for, desiring, if we want another anthropomorphism, self-renewing, self-diversifying form. I've been arguing in these lectures that we can't make any real sense of our linguistic life without reflecting on the diverse ways in which speech opens onto an ever-receding horizon. There are no last words in what human beings say and no point at which we shall have identified the essential structure of the universe exclusively with one descriptive scheme. We can't think of speaking without recognizing its probing and experimental character. And one of the points this lecture has argued is that seeing speech in this light ultimately suggests that we have to suppose something of the same character in the material world as a whole, a seeking of form, a movement towards intelligent coherence. The imaginative response to the world we inhabit is, we could say, a collaboration with the energy of that world itself, It can certainly not be reduced to an arbitrary entertainment, the fancy of a bored individual will imposing patterns on passive stuff. Language insists upon both its limitedness, it happens here, it operates from this, not that perspective, it's always bound to negotiating with the rest of the material system and so on, and language insists on its unfinished and unfinishable character, opening out of the horizon of unconditioned, active presence. And because of those two features, we could say language is always, in some sense, under pressure. In the last two lectures of this series, I want to look at two ways in which that pressure in language appears. In the disruption of what has seemed to be stable reference through metaphor and other apparently counterintuitive strategies, and then the role played by silence, both as conscious strategy, and as a moment of reverse or frustration. Speakers seem compelled to remind themselves and each other of the risks of forgetting the inadequacies of a simple, simply descriptive discourse. They issue and encode warnings in a range of eccentricities and extremes of speech. We've touched briefly on these already, but we need now to spend a little longer on how pressure can be deliberately generated so as to uncover more plainly what language is and is not. This lecture has from time to time noted the importance of trust as a feature of our linguistic practice, but it's equally important to signal those elements in our speech which bring us up against misfires of communication, gaps in understanding, challenges to any easy assumptions about how we recognise one another. I began this lecture by reflecting on the experience of people living with autism, and how others respond to them. And this and comparable situations can bring us to see that in the words of one theologian who's written with rare and costly insight about communication with those who are mentally and developmentally challenged in various ways, it is we who have learning difficulties. That's Frances Young talking about her experience with her son, the moment of her recognition that what they described as her son's learning difficulties were in fact her learning difficulties. Our consideration of both the excesses and the gaps in language will underline the importance of acknowledging learning difficulties and our unfolding sense of what language is, but also the importance, to which I've already alluded in this discussion, of learning how difficulty itself is a key to much of this. Thank you for your patience.
1: Thank you very much. I I sort of feel very much um, constrained coming to the lectern and saying simple words of of thanks and appreciation because it becomes more complex than that when you think about the relation to the material world. Um I'll I'll just pause for a moment and a- allow uh people to to, to leave um, if if they want to do so um, and then we'll have time for some questions. Could I ask people to, to to draw my attention to where they are and we'll we'll make sure the roving mic reach reaches you. Um and Lynn, sorry. Oh right, you saw somebody. Okay. Yep. Uh,
3: could you identify yourself in the way you go? My name is Margaret Whitelaw. I um, I can't really formulate a question, but I'm struck by the similarity of some of the vocabulary you used to the vocabulary used by Eugene Gendlin, who is a, a, a philosopher-psychologist mm-hmm. from the Social a <laughs> Symbolic interactionist School at... University of Chicago, and his work seems to locate, it seems to be, he talks about similar things in relation to a location within the body, the physical body of the individual. As I say, I can't formulate a question, mm. I'm just struck by... No. You, you seem to be ex- talking about the external relations, and he seems to be saying a part of what you're saying in relation to internal relations. But right. he talks about a physical space within the body and a felt sense of going beyond the scope of language to articulate and to attending... Mm-hmm to that, and having, developing a communicative relationship with that.
2: Thank you very much. Um, it's not m- much more than a name to me, I'm afraid, but clearly a connection I'll have to follow through. Just very briefly on um, the body and its, and its knowing and its internal processes. There's, of course, a lot of intriguing work that's been done recently on what some people have rather Melodramatically called the second brain, that is the um, the pelvic bundle of neural responses, which are as informative in their way as as what happens in the cerebellum, and um, it's a Canadian writer called Philip Shepherd, I think, who picks this up and says that is one reason why the the old philosophical cliche about the brain and the vat, you know. The, the isolated brain, which which is being fed stimuli that create um, representational fantasies in the brain. That won't work. It is actually the entire body that knows, and there are internal forms of connectedness of the brain with the rest of the body, particularly with the pelvic cluster, that ought to make us very wary of thinking that the brain is all that it's about.
1: But, sorry, there's a... a well, maybe in a moment, but sorry, but the mic's around there now.
2: Thank you. My name's Ian Matheson, and possibly my question trespasses on your next lecture. But when you emphasize that speech is an embodied physical act, how absolute a distinction do you want to make between language embodied in speech and language used in other ways, in particular the notation of language in writing? <clears throat> Thank you very much indeed. Um, <clears throat> I don't want to make too sharp a distinction there because um, writing is another of those physical acts, of course, um, as is reading. Um, people often forget we actually use our eyes to read, and our eyes, you know, tend to be in our bodies. So I'd, I'd want again just to draw it back into that. Um, that particular circle. Um, but th- there is uh, another question there which, which does intrigue me, whether you'd have to say that written language is always implicitly an instruction for physical performance, audible performance. And I'm, not, I'm really not sure about that. Um, I was, coincidentally, I was at a, a seminar at the weekend um, with someone who's, who's written very, very effectively on a number of issues around feminist philosophy and was saying, among other things, um, that, of course, you write what you can't say. And there's enough in that to make me pause. So, work in progress, I think, is the best response to that.
1: There's a gentleman here with a red tie on. <clears throat>
3: Malcolm Oliver, um, you mentioned briefly in passing quanta, which um, brought to my mind uh, an observation of Max Planck that his uh, uh, decision to devote his
2: life to science came from an early recognition that the laws of physics coincided
3: precisely with the laws governing the sequences of the impressions we receive from the world around us. I was just wondering whether you think the same thing is true of language in the sense of the way in which we use language and the way in which we understand
2: it. It's one of the great philosophical issues, isn't it? It continues to um, preoccupy professional philosophers. Um, David Chalmers, in his massive recent book on um, the character of consciousness, says that this question of Intentionality—the the relatedness of our consciousness to what's there—is the great issue for the next generation of philosophy of mind. He's obviously right. Um, I think that, and his own argument about this is is well worth looking at. <clears throat> I think that while it's um, easy, in a way, to say almost well, we would say that, wouldn't we? our, our words look very like the world because of course we've already carved up the world in such a way that our words correspond to it but it's not quite like that what what we have as I've been arguing in these lectures is the experience um, a loose word but a necessary one the experience of constantly trying to get the fit a bit better because we've, we've got so far and it breaks down here for these very specific reasons we, we know we can do better, we move on, we refine our tools, we refine our conceptual and our technological structures, and something else is drawn in, and something else is displaced, and so it goes on. Um, I think that, certainly it's, it's very interesting that physicists like Planck or indeed Bohm would say, yes of course we believe we're talking about what's true, but we do need to get away from the simple dualism of stuff out there and stuff in here, or stuff out there and woo, something or other in here that thinks or knows and understand very much, of course, the theme song of modern physics, understand our involvement in what's observed, and understand also the extreme elusiveness of some of what we'd like to think would be causal connections. Bohm's example many, many years ago of the apparent um, coincidence of happenings at the subatomic level in otherwise utterly unconnected settings. Yeah, that remains an interesting theme and question for the physicist. So I would say yes, language as i was put it before, shows its engagement, its real engagement with the real world by that constant advanced revision self-questioning that goes on. There's,
1: there's <coughs> another question on the front row please. Yeah.
2: <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. Um, there's a kind of ambiguity or in, in, in what you were saying with how I wasn't quite sure of it was when you talk about the irredeemably infinite ways of going forward and going on is that a necessary thing that is to say it's always the sense that we can chop up the world in different ways Mm. or we can it's it's that there's always another way of looking at the world or
3: something like that or is it that there is just a lot and and um and that we're just too 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 small now in a way it's not in In what you're saying it's never really clear it kind mm. of it seems to f- move in between those two
2: mm. uh, that's a fair comment, I think, but i'd um, I defend the principle of literally unfinishable linguistic labor, not on the grounds that um, back to lecture number two, we can say anything we like about anything, but that the very fact of going on speaking, the very fact of perspectival, perceptual, point of view, diversity, means that there is not going to be one and only one final form of perceiving. It's not just that there's a lot. There really is not a a place to stop here. Um, Which doesn't mean that um, we can say things that simply undermine or make nonsense of previous sustainable perceptions, but that there are going to be more.
1: And a question at the back
0: there. Um, Victoria Stock, um, thank you very much for your lecture this evening. I was just wondering um, what you said in terms of um, how we philosophically interpret the world around us through how we relate to one another and how, that might relate to yourself as a man of faith, of how that ties up with your personal faith and how you perceive um, the scriptures and the way it's been recorded down and how you internalize that in your own faith and spirituality. I mean, I understand there's a mystery of faith and what you've said, but just for you, how you interpret it and tie it together.
2: Right, um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I have about five minutes for autobiography. <laughs> well, briefly to a very important question. Um, I suppose that part of where I see the connection is maybe best exemplified in the old translation of a phrase in Ecclesiastes, God has put the world in their hearts. But for me, and I'm speaking very much from a faith perspective and as a theologian here, One of the implications of the notion that we are created in the image of God is that there is um, an unquenchable appetite for truth within us, which expresses itself in science, in art, and in contemplation, in the intellectual exploration of our environment, in the imaginative refinement and deepening of our environment, and in the silence in which we seek to receive the agency of God into ourselves more fully in prayer. Um, so that, for me, that the, the picture of the human self that's at the heart of all this is, is, is exactly what I feel I'd expect if, if that doctrine of humanity in the image of God is taken seriously, that something about us, as you know, somebody like Gregory of Nyssa says in the fourth century, something about us is, if not infinite, then at least um, very fuzzy as regards the boundaries.
1: Okay. Uh, We've just got time for maybe one more question. There's one at the back there.
0: Just there. I would thank, thank you for tonight. I'm... I was hanging on by my fingertips and I think I fell off several times. (laughs) So this question is really um, that I'm left with wondering if you could say a little bit more to help me about the connections between what I hear you explore and the whole continental philosophical strands of postmodernism and deconstruction. And I'm thinking particularly of the kind of conversation between Derrida and Caputo Mm -hmm. and what you made me think of is Caputo's theology of the event so that we're talking about something about the relativism of language which doesn't descend into vagueness and giving up and anything Mm -hmm. goes Mm -hmm. but that is a challenge to keep trying and Caputo Mm -hmm. seemed to catch something of that in terms of process, there is something unfolding, something mm-hmm. trying to unfold, that we can only come close to in um, the, attention, the best attention that we can pay, including to the language and the way we talk about it. But to help me, I would be really interested to hear any thoughts you have about the connection between what you're saying and that realm.
2: Thank you. Um, well, I think you've brilliantly answered your own question, really. Um, but I, Caputo is somebody I find very very interesting and very helpful. Um, though I, I have to say I found some of his earlier work rather than some of his later more useful. That's just my own judgment. Um, yes, I mean, that, that sense that... Um, while we cannot begin from or take for granted a simple isomorphic mapping of language onto, you know, the, onto given categories of the world, that doesn't mean we're absolved from the struggle and the struggle of truthfulness in you know, a very radical sense. Um, the first book of Caputo's I think that I read was one where he brings together Heidegger and Meister Eckhart um, in a very suggestive and slightly mind-blowing way. <laughs> and I think that when I talk about his early work, it's that book that made a great impact on me. So he's there in in the map, definitely. I suppose my reason for using Mero-Ponty among continental philosophers rather than others is mostly that he's the one who seems to me to have the most simply elegant and coherent vocabulary for dealing with this, and the one who at least allows a bit of conversation to happen with the Anglo-American analytical tradition in ways that the computers of this world don't always. And I want to keep the lines of communication open on that front too.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Um, I think we've probably had our allotted time for questions. And I uh, uh, just, very briefly, before bringing this lecture to a close I, I want to um, the whole event to a close. I do want to reiterate my, my thanks and appreciation to Lord Rowan Williams for his his exposition his coverage of so many methods the philosophical the uh, the scientific and the uh, theological his, his also his, his coverage of so many disciplines i mean i 'm incredibly impressed with such a uh, range of uh, from, from, um, uh, from, from uh, therapeutic practice derived from sort of neuroscience insights into ASD via evolutionary biology, the philosophy of language. Uh, theoretical physics, um, moral philosophy, and then, of course, making it intelligible, trying to make it intelligible to us in the context of a a theology. And I thought the question about the relationship to personal faith was a very interesting and illuminating one to help us uh, bring that together. So thank you very much, uh, Lord Williams, for for your lecture, and thank you also for your attention and for your questions in the audience. Thank you.
0: This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh.